0: Good morning, church family, and uh, what a wonderful service we're having so far. I really appreciate Jim's uh, message uh, to parents and uh, what an appropriate day uh, this is for uh, that exhortation from the word and the celebration with the families and the and beautiful children. Just a blessing to us all. Uh, inadvertently, this service in its format uh, is somewhat actually similar to uh, what Uh, We got to be blessed by in the service formats uh, in Ukraine where we lived for so many years where in, they would have a two-hour-long... Now, that's not the part. It, they would have a two-hour-long service, but in that service, they would have three different messages. And though the service is going to stay on time today, Lord willing, um, we are going to have kind of three mini-messages, the first uh, by Pastor Jim uh, for our parents and for the congregation as we think about those things. And then we're going to be finishing our message on Isaiah chapters 30-23, through 23. And then at the end of the service, I have a few words uh, to say to the mothers and uh, to the congregation in regard to Mother's Day. So uh, for this is kind of the second of the three mini-messages this morning, and so we're going to be in Isaiah chapters 13 through 23, and we're finishing our study of, of this section, which is the third major section in the book of Isaiah. And if you remember from last time in Isaiah chapters 13 through 23, there are prophecies given about 11 different nations. And that prophecy about 11 different nations has a common theme, that, a theme that runs through all 11 prophecies, which is this, God is the judge of all the earth. All of the nations of the world are accountable to God because he is the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. He is the judge of all the earth. And so we've been looking at these 11 prophecies to 11 different nations, and what we're trying to do is to simply glean one key truth from each of these prophecies, and if you remember last time we covered the first six, and so today we'll be covering the last five, but just to briefly review the lessons we learned from the first six, in the prophecy about Babylon we learned that Satan's rebellion ultimately is going to fail, God is going to triumph and the rebellion and the wickedness led by Satan will fail. In the prophecy about Assyria, we saw that those who curse Israel will be cursed. Remember in the Abrahamic covenant, God said to Abraham those who bless you, I will bless and those who curse you, I will curse. And then he said that uh, through the descendants of Abraham all of the families of the world will be blessed. And of course he's talking about the fact that through the line of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob then down through David, that line then leads to Jesus Christ who gave his life as a sacrifice for the sins of the whole world and therefore, as John 3.16 says, whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. But part of that Abrahamic covenant was this statement that those who bless you, I will bless, and those who curse you, I will curse. And history has shown this and played this out repeatedly down through the ages and to the current time that those who bless God's chosen people, Israel, are blessed, those who curse them are cursed. That was the lesson from the prophecy about Assyria. Then in the prophecy about Philistia, we saw that God rescues the afflicted by judging their oppressors. In order to rescue the oppressed, God has to bring judgment on the oppressors. To rescue the afflicted, God has to punish those who afflict others. And so we see the compassion of God for the victim played out in his judgment upon those who victimize those who who are predators or those who oppress those who abuse those who afflict others and then we saw in the prophecy about Moab that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Yes, he is going to judge evil because that is the only way for the misery to end. If he didn't judge evil, then evil would continue forever and therefore misery would continue forever. And so God does have to put an end to evil by judgment, by pouring out wrath, judicial wrath upon the doers of evil. But when he does so, he takes no pleasure in The punishment and the judgment of the wicked. Remember, we cited two passages from Ezekiel where God says specifically this He says, I take no pleasure. As I live, He says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that they would turn and live. He cries out, Turn from your wicked ways and live. Don't keep rushing headlong over the precipice of sin and hell. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He will judge the wicked, but he takes no pleasure in doing so. Then in the prophecy about Syria, we learned that idolatry will be eliminated. There is coming a day when no one and no thing will be worshipped except the true and living God, the creator of all things. And then... We ended last time with the prophecy about Ethiopia where this glorious nation with these people that are described as being tall and beautiful and and a people who had great power and influence in the ancient world, the prophecy is given that they will bring their glory and lay it at the feet of God in worship. And then we saw that Revelation says that that will be true of all of the nations, that every tribe, tongue, and nation will bring their glory into Jerusalem in worship to God in the millennial kingdom. That's where we ended last time. So this morning we're gonna be covering the final five nations and learning five lessons from those prophecies beginning with the prophecy about Egypt in chapter 19 verse one through chapter 20 verse six. And the lesson that I think we should glean here because it's a major theme of this prophecy is that the Gentiles will be grafted in to the messianic hope and that term grafted in is a term i'm borrowing from the apostle paul in his teaching in romans chapters 9 through 11 where he talks about israel being the root and the gentiles being like branches that are grafted in and uh if if you have heard a little bit about botany and i've heard a little bit but so i won't go too deep in this because what i'm about to say is the sum of my knowledge about it but If you notch a tree and you you insert and you cut in a certain way, you can insert a branch and bind them together and eventually they will grow together and become... Uh, part of one another and that is the illustration that Paul uses in Romans 9 for the Gentiles being grafted into the messianic hope. That hope which was given to Abraham that through his descendants all the families of the world will be blessed. That the Messiah will come from this line and then the promise made to David and then fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the Gentiles are grafted into that messianic hope and that's what's very clearly Stated in this section So let's look a little bit at this section And a little bit of the, of the background This prophecy is about Egypt And we had just a little bit earlier Seen a prophecy about Assyria Well, Egypt and Assyria in this time were rival superpowers. And they kind of, one was on one side of Israel and one was on the other. And they were both constant threats. You can imagine being a little tiny nation in between these two great big powerful world superpowers, what that would be like to be in the middle. And in the time of Isaiah, as recorded in Isaiah chapter 20, the Assyrian king, Sargon II, who reigned from 722 to 705 B.C., sent the commander of his army to capture the Philistine city of Ashdod. And that city fell in 711 B.C. But as this Philistine army was coming against the Philistines in Ashdod, the Philistines did what was natural in the ancient world and they appealed to the other superpower, to Egypt, their southern neighbor, for help. And so the Egyptians started mobilizing to save Ashdod, to save Ashdod from the Assyrians. But Ashdod, despite the Egyptian intervention, Ashdod fell. The Assyrians captured the city. And this was a great humiliation for Egypt, that they could not prevent the fall of Ashdod. Then, a couple decades later, in 671 B.C., the prophecy given here in Isaiah 20 was fulfilled when Esarhaddon, a later king of Assyria, defeated and utterly humiliated a coalition of both Egypt and Cush, which is, Cush is in modern-day Ethiopia. And so Egypt and Cush had allied in order to try to stop the Assyrians, and the Assyrians not only defeated them, but absolutely humiliated them in the process. And this had huge huge implications for Judah because Judah had placed their hope in Egypt and Cush for protection from the coming Assyrians. And so the defeat of the Egyptians and the Cushites left Judah dismayed and ashamed. Look at Isaiah chapter 20, verses four through six. It says, "'The king of Assyria will lead away the captives of Egypt,' And the exiles of Cush, young and old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks uncovered, to the shame of Egypt. This is a description of how ancient armies would utterly humiliate those that they captured by parading them and by by mocking them and humiliating them in some of the worst ways possible. So this is a prophecy that Assyria would defeat and humiliate and put Egypt to shame. Then in verse 5, it talks about the reaction that takes place in Judah. It says, Then they, that is the people of Judah, will be dismayed and ashamed because of Cush, their hope, and Egypt, their boast. So the inhabitants of this coastland will say in that day, Behold, such is our hope, where we fled for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria. And we, how shall we escape? So if you remember, Israel would often turn to one superpower or the other for help whenever they were in trouble. So if you remember from chapter seven, when the northern 10 tribes came against Judah uh, uh, along with Aram or what is in modern day Syria and they were being invaded from the north, they turned to Assyria for help. Well, now they're gonna be invaded by Assyria so they turned to Egypt for help. Well, when the Assyrian army crushes the Egyptians, This leaves the people dismayed and ashamed because they had put their hope in Cush. They had made Egypt their boast, and they said, Look, if we've put our hope in Egypt, the superpower, and the superpower's been crushed, then what's going to become of us? So one aspect of this prophecy is the same theme that we discussed earlier when we studied Ahaz's tragic choice to trust the king of Assyria for deliverance rather than God. They make it, they're making the same mistake again. They turned in one situation to Assyria for help. Then when Assyria comes at them, they turn to Egypt for help. And this is kind of a pattern that happened in ancient Israel. When a foreign power threatened them, they were tempted to seek help from a rival foreign power rather than trusting in God, and that ended for them in disaster. And sadly, it will not be according to the scriptures until the end times that Israel finally learns the lesson of trusting in God, not in man for deliverance. There's a passage in the, in the Prophets which describes Israel, like a person who's leaning on a reed for support, and the lead breaks and and splinters his hand. This supposed superpower is a fragile reed to lean on, and where they really should be relying on, on God for deliverance. Look at chapter 10. If you flip back to chapter 10, and just as a reminder, it says that in the end times. Israel will finally stop relying on human power and will start to rely once again on God's power, the power that enabled David to defeat Goliath, the power that rescued them from Egypt. That was God's hand, and so they should stop looking to man, and it says in the end times they will, Isaiah 10.20. Now in that day, the remnant of Israel and those of the house of Jacob who have escaped will never again rely on the one who struck them but will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. So think about this. They, when they're invaded by the northern ten tribes, they turn to Assyria for help. Well, the Assyrians then come and invade them. So they're relying on the one who's striking them. And then when the Syria comes at them, they turn to Egypt for help. Well, the Egyptians are the ones who had enslaved them for hundreds of years and, and were a constant threat to them. They keep relying on those who are striking them. When one, stri- one superpower strikes them, they turn to the other for help. When that one strikes them, they turn to the other for help. And God is saying, no, look up and turn to me for help. By the way... What happened on a national scale for them uh, does happen on an individual level. It's very common for a person to put their hope or even to have some sort of a reliance even on the person who is afflicting them or oppressing them or abusing them. And the path out of that usually comes when they trust in the Lord and then they utilize the means that God has given in order to escape from oppressors, which are things like law enforcement or the authority of the church or family and friends who can help to rescue. And I just want to, as an aside, a little bit unplanned to mention this this morning, but if anyone in the congregation or someone you know is in an oppressive situation, encourage them to utilize the means God has provided as a way of escape but ancient Israel continued to rely or trust on the ones that were striking them and it will be in the end times when they will stop doing that and they will fully rely on God and God will rescue them he alone is worthy of our trust and true hope is found in him alone Well, that's kind of the historical context. Now I want to look at the key prophecy here, and that's in chapter 19, verses 19 through 25, which teaches that the Gentiles will be grafted into the messianic hope. They will be reconciled to God, reconciled to Israel, and they will be reconciled to each other as well. Look at Isaiah 19, verses 19 through 25. It says, "...in that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt." And a pillar to the Lord near its border. It will become a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. For they will cry to the Lord because of oppressors, and he will send them a savior and a champion, and he will deliver them. Thus the Lord will make himself known to Egypt, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day. They will even worship with sacrifice and offering, and will make a vow to the Lord and perform it. The Lord will strike Egypt, striking but healing. So they will return to the Lord, and he will respond to them and will heal them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrians will come into Egypt and the Egyptians into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third party with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. This is an astounding prophecy about the grafting in of the Gentiles. Verse 19 prophesies that there will be an altar to Yahweh in Egypt. And I want you to realize how incredible that had to be to say that in the time of Isaiah because already back then in 700 BC, already for centuries, the Egyptians had been worshiping their demon gods, right? The Ra, the, all of the gods with the head of a beast and the body of a man. They had this this pantheon of false gods that they had been worshiping in these occultic and cultic ways for centuries. And so to say that the Egyptians were going to worship the true and living God set up an altar to him in the midst of their land and a pillar near the border with Israel to Yahweh was an incredible prophecy. It had to sound almost impossible. And even today it seems so impossible to imagine For example, the Egyptians in mass leaving Islam and building an altar to Yahweh, the God of Israel. But in the end times, this is exactly what will happen. Verses 21 through 22 says that Egypt will repent. They will know the Lord, and they will worship and obey Him, and they will be healed by Him. Verse 23 says, says something also amazing. It says that there's going to be reconciliation even between the rival superpowers, the arch enemies, Egypt and Assyria. In fact, it says the Assyrians, there will be a highway built and the Assyrians will come to Egypt to worship God with them there and the Egyptians will go to Assyria to worship God with them there. There will be reconciliation of both of them to God and because they are both reconciled to God, they will be reconciled to each other. And verse 25 says God will bless Egypt and Assyria. And he even calls them in verse 25 by the covenantal terms usually reserved only for Israel. Typically in the Old Testament, only Israel is called my people. Only Israel is called the work of my hands. Only Israel is called my inheritance. But verse 25 says, The Lord of hosts has blessed them, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. This is... The prophecy of what the Apostle Paul in Romans 11 calls the grafting in of the Gentiles. The Gentile nations will be grafted in to the messianic hope and just as Israel is called my people by God, so also the Gentiles who are grafted in will be called my people. Just as they are called the work of my hands, the Gentiles will be called the work of his hands and Israel will be his inheritance. When Christ returns, all the peoples of the earth will be united in one glorious kingdom with Christ as king. That is what all of history is leading to, one glorious kingdom with Christ as king. Now the question is, who establishes that kingdom? And the answer is that the Lord Jesus establishes that kingdom at his second coming. But notice the prominent place of Israel even then, even in that kingdom, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 24, it says that Israel will be a blessing in the midst of the earth. Jerusalem, which God has sovereignly placed at the crossroads of the continents, will be a blessing in the midst or in the middle of the earth. Right in the middle of the earth, there will be this source of blessing for the whole world. This will be the final fulfillment of the promise God made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, that all the families of the earth will be blessed through his descendants. Right in the middle of the earth, right there in Jerusalem, where Jesus Christ will rule and reign, Jerusalem will be the capital of this glorious messianic kingdom the millennial kingdom of christ and from there blessing will flow to the whole world so this prophecy says the gentiles will be grafted into the messianic hope they will be reconciled to god and to each other and they will be blessed by israel which will serve as the capital of the worldwide millennial kingdom of jesus By God's grace and by the redemptive power of the gospel, by the grafting in of the Gentiles, Egypt and Assyria will be called by God my people and the work of my hands just as Israel is. And So this is another reminder of what Revelation teaches that God is redeeming from every tribe, tongue, and nation and he is redeeming those people and he is grafting them into the messianic hope and they will worship together in one glorious kingdom that is the prophecy to egypt now let's look briefly at the prophecy to edom which is just two verses long and the key idea here is that oppression won't last forever in this prophecy there's a watchman who call the people are calling out to the watchman watchman how much longer will the night last and the watchman says there's the night's going to last for a while then morning will come then another night will come but then finally will come the dawn And so, this is a prophecy that there will be two periods of suffering, but finally, in the end, the dawn of hope will come. So, this is teaching us that oppression won't last forever. And then the ninth prophecy to Arabia in verses 21, chapter 21, verse 13 through 21. Uh, verse 17, I think the key lesson here is that God wants us to care for refugees. In verse 14, there's a specific command that God gives for the people to provide bread and water for war refugees. A specific command for the people to provide bread and water for war refugees. God is compassionate towards those who are fleeing the oppression of the conflicts of men, of the wars of men. And he wants people, in these prophecies, you see verses that talk about taking them into your home, that talk about feeding them, clothing them, and here in verse 14, giving them food and water. And that's why I'm so grateful and proud of the congregation for how you've so generously uh, helped all of the the Ukrainian refugees that we've been working with uh, from the conflict there and the families and the life groups who are taking care of some of the Afghan refugees and people from other nations uh, whom the Lord has brought here to Kalamazoo. I'm so grateful that you're obeying and applying scriptures like uh, Isaiah 21:14 by doing that. And the cup of water that you're giving to these suffering folks in Jesus' name is bearing eternal fruit and giving glory and honor to Jesus Christ. So thank you for all who are involved in that. The 10th prophecy is to Judah, and I think the key lesson here is that the reality of death should cause repentance, not hedonistic escapism. The reality of death should cause repentance, not hedonistic escapism. Now, if you don't know what the term hedonism means, hedonism is pleasure-seeking. It's living for pleasure. And escapism is trying to push something out of your mind so you don't have to think about it. So hedonistic escapism is when you try to not think about the hard realities of life and of of judgment to come, and, and you try to avoid thinking about that by immersing yourself in pleasures and other aspects of this world. In chapter 22, verses 1 through 25, in the prophecy about Judah, it says that, Tragically, many of the people in Judah responded to the prophecies of impending judgment not by lamenting and repenting, but by partying. God sends Isaiah to warn them, these judgments are coming, judgment is coming, judgment day is coming, and instead of lamenting over their sin and repenting, They responded by partying. They said, hey, if hard times are coming, if judgment is coming, then might as well live and get all the gusto out of life we can now. We might as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Let's party as long as we can. That's how they responded. They were supposed to respond by lamenting and repenting. Instead, they responded by partying. Look at chapter 22, verses 12 through 13. Isaiah 22, verses 12 through 13. Therefore, in that day, the Lord God of hosts called you to weeping, to wailing, to shaving the head, and to wearing sackcloth. Sackcloth was a sign of mourning. Verse 13. Instead, there is gaiety and gladness, killing of cattle and slaughtering of sheep, eating of meat and drinking of wine, And what were the people saying? They were saying, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we may die. There are two responses to warnings of impending judgment. One person responds to a warning of impending judgment by lamenting over the reason that judgment is coming, which is sin, and then repenting and turning from sin. Another person says, hey, if we only have a little time left, let's party it up. Verse 13 is quoted by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15.32 because it is common for people to use immersive merriment to avoid thinking about the reality of death and judgment. Remember we talked about the evil of immersive merriment from Isaiah chapter 5. And it is common for people to use immersive merriment to avoid thinking about the reality of death and judgment. We just push it out of our minds through keeping our minds constantly entertained so we don't have to think about the reality of death. We don't have to think about the reality that judgment day is coming. We don't want to think about that. So we push it out of our minds with all kinds of entertainment. But that is a form of escapism. And it's a spiritually deadly form of escapism because it prevents people from thinking about their need to repent before it's too late. The result of this kind of hedonistic escapism is always tragic. Look at verse 14, it says, but the Lord of hosts revealed himself to me and what did the Lord say? Surely this iniquity, what, and what iniquities is he talking about? The iniquity of responding with merriment when they were supposed to be responding with weeping, wailing, and lament. Surely this iniquity shall not be forgiven you until you die, says the Lord God of hosts. You know, there's a lot of people who say, this, look, I'm going I'm to live it up. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use hedonistic escapism so that I don't have to think about death. I don't have to think about judgment. I don't have to think about my sin. I don't have to think about my guilt. I'm just going to keep distracting myself. When I feel guilty, I'll drink and drown my guilt. When, I, when, I, when I'm starting to be bothered by what's going to happen to me after death, I'm just going to party it up so I don't have to think about those things and they live for pleasure, eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we will die, and they live it up, live it up, and they, they think, at the very end, I'll repent. The problem is, they party so hard, they party right into the grave, and right into hell. Sadly, dear friend, if you live for pleasure, you'll choose one last pleasure, even on your deathbed. If you live for pleasure, you'll choose pleasure, not repentance, on your deathbed. Sin enslaves, and what you do for years is how you will be. And many people, when they're young, say, I'll get my life right with God towards the end. But you know what? By the time they get to the end, they are so hardened by sin. They've so deadened their conscience. They've built such habits of distracting their minds from spiritual truths that even in the end, even when they're lying in a hospital bed dying, they will not listen. They will not heed. They will continue to seek one last escape, one last pleasure before they die. So don't wait to repent. You can wait too long. You can wait past the point of no return where your heart is too hard to receive the seed of the word. The reality of death should cause repentance, not hedonistic escapism. Well, the last Of the 11 prophecies is to Tyre in chapter 23 verses 1 through 18 and I think the lesson here is that those who will not humble themselves will be humbled by God. Tyre was a very famous city in the ancient world known for its pride and they had good reasons to be proud. They were a very ancient city. It was a very wealthy city. It was a very influential city and so they were very proud but because they refused to humble themselves Chapter 23, verses 6 through 9 prophesies that they will be humbled by God. Look at chapter 23, verse 6 through 9. Pass over to Tarshish. Whale, O inhabitants of the coastland, is this your jubilant city, whose origin is from antiquity, whose feet used to carry her to colonize distant places? Who has planned this against Tyre, the bestower of crowns, whose merchants were princes, whose traders were the honored of the earth? The Lord of hosts has planned it. And why did he plan it? Listen to the answer given to defile the pride of all beauty, to despise all the honored of the earth. You see, if mankind won't humble themselves, they'll be humbled by God. Those who will not humble themselves will be humbled by God. Well, that brings us to the end of our survey of the third major section of the book of Isaiah. We've learned that the main idea from this section is that God is the judge of all the earth and we've learned 11 lessons from these prophecies. We've learned that Satan's rebellion will fail, that those who curse Israel will be cursed, that God rescues the afflicted by judging their oppressors. We've learned that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. We've learned that idolatry will be eliminated. We've learned that the glory of the nations will be given to God. We've learned that the Gentiles will be grafted in to the messianic hope. We've learned that oppression won't last forever, that God wants us to care for refugees. And we've learned that the reality of death should cause repentance, not hedonistic escapism because those who will not humble themselves will be humbled by God. My question for you is which of those 11 lessons did God intend particularly for you and how will you apply it in the weeks and months to come? I hope you will give that some thought. Lord, as we turn now to uh, the remainder of our service, Lord, I do pray that you will take one of these lessons and apply it to each heart lord of these 11 lessons which we've gleaned from these 11 prophecies lord by your spirit take and show each person what you have in store for them what you want them to learn from these prophecies and then how you want them apply it to apply it to their life lord we thank you that you are the judge of all the earth lord if if that were not true then evil would be eternal and therefore misery would be eternal But Lord, you are the judge of all the earth and there is coming a day when you will reign in righteousness and judgment in a kingdom of peace and of joy and that kingdom will last forever. That is our hope and we are grateful for the gospel which brings us into it. And so I pray that no one would set aside that hope but that all will repent and believe in the good news of the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in a few moments, Pastor Brett will share another word with us as we close. But before then, I invite you to stand and let's honor the Lord in response uh, to his word. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. Praise him. I've got to be honest with you that, uh, you know, this week I was thinking, how am I going to segue from a message on the judgment of the nations to Happy Mother's Day? And I just didn't come up with any segue, so I'm like, hey, we will sing, and uh, that will be the segue. Well, today is Mother's Day, and uh, so I want to just wish you all a very happy Mother's Day. And I'd like to close the lesson today by passing on to you uh, really an incredible lesson about the love of God that I feel I was taught by one of the families in our church. Many of you may know the Garrett family and know that Chase and Bethany Garrett's infant girl Josie recently went through an extended hospital stay and endured a lot of suffering in the process. When Austin, Dosh, and I visited them in the hospital, it was heartbreaking to see this precious little girl suffering so much and... To see the burden that that was on the heart of the parents was, was something that uh, was just really um, striking heartbreaking. It's one of, of all the hospital visits I've done. It's one of the ones I was most impacted by. In the midst of this trial Chase, Josie's father just went not only the extra mile but many extra miles to care for their other children to be there for Bethany and for Josie. But what really struck me was that for weeks on end, Josie's mother didn't leave her side. Night after night, she got little or no sleep. Night after night after night, so she could hold and comfort Josie. I got to see the garretts before the Iwana's award ceremony and rejoice with them to see Josie doing so much better. I was chatting with them a little bit, and Bethany said something that really struck me. She said that this experience taught her that a mother's love can take her to the very limits of physical and emotional endurance and then far beyond. Far beyond. And that is certainly true. What a mother will do and what she will endure to care for her child is one of the most amazing things in the world. And I feel very privileged because I get to observe it more often than most as I sometimes get to observe families in deep trial and get to see the power of a mother's love uh, for her children. I'm convinced from what I've observed in my years of ministry that a mother's love is one of the strongest forces in all of creation, and I think that's universally recognized even in the unbelieving world that there is nothing stronger here on earth in the created realm than a mother's love. But I want to listen to the con- I want you to listen to the contrast that Isaiah 49:14 through 16 makes between the most powerful love in creation and then the love of the creator. This is Isaiah 49:14 through 16. Shout for joy, O heavens, and rejoice, O earth. Break forth into joyful shouting, O mountains, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. But Zion has said, the Lord has forsaken me and the Lord has forgotten me. Can a mother forget her nursing baby and have no compassion on the child of her womb? Even though she may forget, I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. God is saying, isn't it impossible to imagine that a mother could forget about her nursing child or have no compassion on her child if that is so impossible, though it does sadly happen sometimes on earth? But God is saying, even this greatest of all loves is nothing compared to mine, God is saying that his love is even more devoted, even more reliable, even more amazing, even more sacrificial than the love of a mother. That's why I said at the beginning that the Garrett family, I think, really has taught me an incredible lesson about the love of God because observing the way Bethany went not only to the point of exhaustion but far beyond out of her mother's love for Josie, is an incredible reminder from what's called in Scripture an argument from the the greater to the even greater. This is an amazing lesson about the depth and devotion and sacrificial love of God because as amazing as a mother's love is, the only thing greater than that is the love of God. God's love is even deeper than that. And it brings a new perspective on how high and long and high and deep the love of God is. That's why in the New Testament the apostle prays, I pray that you'll be able to grasp how long and how high and how wide and how deep the love of God is. And when we observe a mother pouring out her life for her children in the 2 a.m. feedings and in the dark nights of prayer for uh, a hurting child or a wondering child or a child who's enduring trials, when we see um, the power of a mother's love, we are to be reminded that God's love is even more powerful. And so today on Mother's Day, we want to honor mothers for teaching us by their example how deep and how devoted and how sacrificial human love can be and then be reminded by that and by Isaiah 49 that God's love is even deeper, even more devoted, even more sacrificial than the love of the most committed mother. And so that's why on Mother's Day we say to all of the moms out there, thank you for your love and thank you for the fact that by your example you are teaching us about the love of God. We want to honor you today, and by honoring you today, we're giving glory to the only one whose love exceeds yours and that is the Lord himself. Isaiah forty nine fourteen through 16. I'll read it as a benediction for us. Shout for joy, O heavens. Rejoice, O earth. Break forth into joyful shouting, O mountains, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. Can a mother forget her nursing baby and have no compassion on the child of her womb? Even though she may forget, I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. And we know how that prophecy was fulfilled, do we not? We are engraved on the palms of his hands, and scripture teaches he will bear the marks of the cross even into Eternity as the final proof of the Creator's love for us, a love so deep, so wide, so loving, so committed, so devoted, so sacrificial that it exceeds even the most exemplary human love, the love of a mother. And so I want to wish you all a happy Mother's Day and urge you to do what Isaiah 49 says shout for joy, O heavens, rejoice, O earth, break into joyful shouting, O mountains, for the Lord loves you. Go in peace.